In this episode of Smart Humans, we talk with Ben Miller, the CEO of Fundrise, the real estate investment platform that now manages over $3 billion of AUM. Ben shares with us why he is completely out of the stock market, selling all of his shares, and his view on his own bell bar investment approach. He gives us his perspective on the macro economy and more importantly, the impact on the U.S. real estate market. He even dives in into three U.S. cities that he is bullish on their real estate and three cities that he is quite bearish. And he finishes with giving us his a unique pick on what he'd be investing into with a three-year investment horizon. Welcome to Smart Humans with Slava Rubin, presented by Vincent. In this alt-investing podcast, Slava talks to amazing minds about their investment journey and finds out what it takes to make it in the markets. And now, here's your host and smart human, Slava Rubin. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Smart Humans. I am very excited for today's guest, Ben Miller. He is the CEO and founder of Fundrise, one of the largest investment platforms in real estate in the world. Actually done over three and a quarter billion dollars of AUM transactions to date. Ben, welcome to the to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. So we always like to start with the same first question. How did you even get into alternative investments? Where did it all start? Yeah, it's funny. I don't think of it as alternative investments. Um, but yeah, I, I think of it as like what like I've always done. So my father was a real estate developer. Um, and he was like, uh, he's like a quintessential entrepreneur. So if you know quintessential entrepreneurs, they're a little bit crazy. Absolutely. <laughs> but like kind of fun. Like there's like, a, I almost think about like the Royal Tannenbaums. You ever see that movie? That's like what it was like. My father's like Gene Hackman. <laughs> <laughs> so he would, he, he um, did all sorts of real estate development. Like, he, and that's like, uh, that's how I learned about real estate. And, um, one of the things I think it gave me is much longer perspective because I can think about like, you know, the real estate in the eighties and he was building like strip centers and like Marshalls and, and then like malls in the nineties and then mixed use developments in the two thousands. And, and, and I, I, I worked for him briefly. So I, I got into real estate because I was family business. And then I sort of went in a different direction in uh, 2012 after the great financial crisis. And were you always working with your father before you started Fundrise or was there anything between kind of, let's call it, um, education and starting Fundrise? Yeah, no, I've had a, a bunch of jobs. I worked for a real estate private equity fund sort of early in my career. Then I actually went and, and worked for a tech company. I, w- I went to work for a tech startup, 99 to 01. That's an exciting time. Yeah, it was absurd. I have so many great stories from that. Like company bought a production company. So the startup was just like, we need to produce content so we should buy a production company and we did and the company managed snoop dog wow and so i yeah so i'd go out to la and just, and be like and like hobnob with the stars it was absurd so that didn't work so i did that um so i and I've, I've done all you know real estate on my own um like a small real estate development company in dc what year was that that you did that small real estate investment company um well, so I, I've done a, I'm basically like, in a way, started a few companies um, in my career. And so that was like 2010 to 12 is when I started that. And then I also, I also did like, <laughs> I did like a tech, a green tech business in 2000, 
two and three. So um, done like a bunch of things. So you've had kind of that entrepreneurial itch um, since the late nineties. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just always that's always what I wanted to do. Actually, I wanted to be an inventor as a kid, but that's actually really hard. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, in a way, entrepreneuring is a, is a form of invention. Absolutely, and it's so easy. So it was a good decision. <laughs> yeah, right. <And> then no <laughs> suffering. <laughs> Um, and from your, uh, personal perspective, obviously we'll get to the platform fundrise soon, but what do you like to invest into? Obviously, you know, a lot about real estate, but what about all these other assets, whether it's, you know, venture or crypto or art or collectibles or private credit NFTs, you know, take your pick as to what you'd like to say that you're into or what you're not into. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not into most of those things, like I'm not into credit, like I don't, I'm not sorry, I'm not, I'm not into crypto. Like I'm not into ours and a lot of the sort of like, you know, like I was at alternative alternatives. They're like extreme spectrum alternatives. I definitely am in real estate hard as an individual. Like I don't even own stocks. You don't? I haven't owned, haven't owned stocks in like, I don't know how many years, a long time, like decade. So I just like own a lot of real estate personally before Fundrise and after Fundrise, you know, and then, and then I, you know, own some of Fundrise. So that's like a private tech company. Of course. Um, and then, and then like where I do invest is credit. So I do like, um, but it would be more like uh, in, investment grade or non-rated debt kind of stuff. Not like, um, not like um, online credit stuff, more, more, more the street credit. So um, did you say that outside of your own company investment that you do or you don't angel invest or things like that? No, I've done a little bit of that years ago. I mean, my 99 to 2001 experience like made me pretty skeptical of a lot of angel investing. It's more like um, a lot of angel investing is more like investing in restaurants. It's like good for the world, but not necessarily like good way to make money. Sure. So yes, yeah, I mean, you know, there are those those like rare situations, but I think you know I'm not I'm not expecting to get angel investment until like the next Google. Got it. So you're actually the first person on our show to say that you don't invest in stocks, that you don't own stocks. Not nope. <laughs> That's amazing. So how did you get there? So did you have stocks like you know in '99, like maybe a few shares or something? Or oh yeah, I invested in. I mean '99, right? I was investing in all sorts of. Uh, stocks, right? It was a bubble. I thought it was great. And then like, you know, in 01, 02, 03, like all of it wiped out. And so it made me like pretty skeptical of stocks. I went back in um, a few times. And, but after after about 2015, I probably sold 15, 16, I sort of sold all my stocks. I felt like, I felt like um, stock pr- prices didn't make any sense to me. And like the, all the quantitative easing and money printing and like, you know, political stimulus that you know first trump then biden i just i was just like wow this doesn't make any sense i can't understand it and so i just said i'm out wow um so from a private um your own like kind of money management net net worth perspective you really try to keep it either in cash you put it in real estate or you put it into these credit opportunities yeah i I like i'm 100 percent alternatives basically (laughs) yeah totally um Meaning because you don't really have any bonds, you don't have the public equities, and you know you might be limited on the actual cash. Yeah. Well, I, I actually, we've been sitting on a ton of cash for a while. Okay. Because I basically like, 
It's something Nassim Tlaib talks about, like barbelling your investments. So I have mm. tons of on risk on investments with like Fundrise and my real estate. So they have, and I'm like, you know, it's like whatever, plenty of convexity, if you want to call it whatever. And then on the other side of the spectrum, I'm just like cash. And then I do have bonds. I mean, I'm credit. Like I've, so I've like the extreme opposite ends and nothing in the middle. Got it. Got it. So you do have some of the stuff that's not alternatives. Okay. Gotcha. That's super interesting. And, um, just one more question about the things that you don't like crypto art collectibles. Is it that you don't feel like you understand them? They're too volatile. You can't find the right man- manager to put money into, or it's like, you know what? I got to just stick to my nading. Like what's the reason to stay away from those things? Yeah. I mean, I guess with crypto, I'm a, I have to be careful. I'm like a little bit of a skeptic on crypto. Maybe big, I think Bitcoin could be, could sort of go the distance, but it's, a, I think it's like, a lot of what people say crypto's for, you can get with like with good real estate. You know, it's it's inflation protected. I think in retrospect, better than crypto. It's like hard asset. It's a utility. Like, you know, people need housing. Like uh, in good times and bad times. So I end up I understand the the sentiment around crypto, but I just feel like I can get it better with like owning real assets. You know, it's, to me, I look at crypto as an alternative to like essentially quantitative easing. The, all the things the Fed's been doing. And I'm like, and that's why I'm not in an unstock. So I get the sentiment. I just think it's, you know, it's, there's like, there's been a lot of hype around crypto. And I basically hate hype. Hype is like the, I, I'm just like, I'm like the curmudgeon. The curmudgeon of hype? Yeah. Yeah. Anytime somebody starts hyping me, I'm like, well, this must be BS. Got it. So what, what is the non-hype sell that you like? What do you like to hear that doesn't sound like hype? Yeah. Value investing, right? Like, like what if we talk about the market, like you can get things way below like real value, fundamental value. I'm like a fundamental investor. Got it. And that's like that's you know, crypto is like it's not a fundamental investment. It might be something, but it's not fundamental. And just for the audience, can you explain what you mean by fundamental investor? I mean, it's it, 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 the traditional de- definition is you're buying something less than its intrinsic cost. So that might be you can buy a house for half the cost to build that house, uh, or you can you know invest in whatever company at a cost that were below book value. So that's like traditional. I think that's a little bit extreme. You know, that's not really how my fundamental investors invest anymore. But it's it's um it's much more about like um cash flows than it is about like uh sort of like paradigm shifts that you sort of imagine might happen with crypto or or um other sort of extreme alternatives. So thank you for sharing all of that. Uh, shifting to your perspective on the market and the market being a very broad generalization of the word. You could take it anywhere you want. Um, you have a very unique point of view, obviously, from your lens with uh, Fundrise and all the real estate exposure, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just going to give you the stage here. What's your view on the market? Say anything you want. Yeah, I, I, this is such a fun conversation right now. Um, so as I said, I'm like, uh, I can be a little bit like of, uh, a contrarian. And so I've been really worried about fed policy for the last 10 years you know it's it's been 10 years of like zero interest rates zerp right or or and pr- money printing they printed like trillions and all this sort of artificial um injections and and now finally that's unwinding and that unwinding is creating like ton of opportunity it's finally like fundamental investing is possible it wasn't possible like 2021, you know, most of 2020, 19. So, and I'm seeing that like one of the great things about Fundrise 
really at scale where I'm now able to like be on the phone with like the major investment banks with sales coverage and and I'm starting to see like you know basically real distress like you know people you probably I mean I was reading about in the Wall Street Journal where you you see like the you know there's all these pension funds that dump their their um CLOs basically cover their their margin calls on their um gilts on their and sorry for the audience what's a CLO oh got um collateralized loan obligation I mean it's what is it actually like god knows <laughs> but it's like this synthetic um you know LLC that lets like people uh, it's a lot like what happened in the 2008 financial crisis you put a bunch of assets into like an LLC and then you lever it up those assets are usually like um debt so they're basically like you know the the street has all sorts of really interesting um complex credit instruments out there and those things like go bad in a financial crisis and that's what's happening now and, and one of the reasons they're going bad is because interest rates are going up so maybe the amount of interest that needs to be paid back or potentially it's hard to you know get the value on those investments on, on those on those opportunities yeah yeah it's, it's i've been having this debate with people basically like i i see a liquidity crisis coming that's because um you know when you have some let's say i'm gonna big example uh portfolio of uh, of houses or portfolio of credit 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 um loans let's say let's say your rocket mortgage or you know somebody's basically bundling up assets and selling them to the street all of a sudden your interest rate doubled which means basically you can only get half the amount of debt as you could get before and so everybody who has anything floating any floating debt basically has to delever has to pay down their debt because the interest rate double, which means their coverage, you know, debt service coverage, it, it, it requires them to sort of bring the leverage down. Or, sorry, floating meaning that the interest rate might have changed. Yeah, it's not fixed interest rate. Yeah. Yep. People, people like, you know, most um, people fix their home mortgage, but most businesses, like most, I mean, have all, like the street is made up of tons of floating rate debt. I mean, the entire repo market, which, which is basically like the, the, the really like the blood of the of the markets it's like the actual underlying flows it's four trillion dollars that's all floating so i i think there's this kind of like as interest rates stay higher for longer which is what i think is going to happen there's a massive deleveraging like starting and when you have to delever it's a it's when you have to delever right it was a forced deleverage that is gonna i mean that things are breaking like companies going out of business and and they're just like going out of business overnight like they just can't meet their repo calls and they're boom gone and so then you, you can buy them if you're at the table for like for for quarter of the price you could have gotten last year so it's really getting i mean it's it's, it's only beginning it's going to get much worse and is that um something that opportunity wasn't really available in the last few years uh because things were so frothy and all the quantitative easing and money printing, where you're saying now that's all going to come to roost, and those that want to be more value investors, you know, work with the fundamentals, might be able to, you know, pick off these opportunities now. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, it's not even might. I'm like, it's already happening. It's like it's it's now. And so I'll give you like something that's closer to what I know a lot about, which is um, re rental housing. So, so specifically, there's um. A lot of companies went out and bought single-family rental homes. Well, they bought single-family homes. A lot of it off MLS. They were buying it like 
he went to try to buy a home and instead some institution bought it, right? That was a huge thing happening. And um, billions of those of the that of houses were bought, maybe tens of billions. And, you know, a company would take those houses, bundle them up into like maybe a thousand, two thousand homes, and then go securitize them uh, you know, uh, in the in the markets. And so last year, companies were securitizing those loans like ninety five percent there was one print that was ninety nine percent leverage one point eight percent interest rate okay so so um that's not very attractive except for if you're the a borrower you know <laughs> so um and I just just as a, an aside like <clears throat> the number of companies that were touching that part of the market the like open door a third of their business was selling their homes to these institutions hmm. through an API. Like there was a lot of quote fintech companies that actually were sort of uh, rooftops. Another one that were part of this sort of big, like this 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 institutional trend. Okay, so now that exact same company is in market actually right now with a with a securitization, and and I'm looking at like the triple B, like the you know the the triple B investment rated tranche and that's about um i'm gonna say 70 percent of cost at an eight percent interest rate maybe nine depending on where at ultimate prices so that's a i mean that is just crazy right how much that's moved so you're basically way 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 deeper you're buying you're at 70 percent of the home value which seems like a good place to be at a nine like or eight eight nine percent interest and you can and you can go lever that if you want and so that is just like, um, I mean, one, obviously, that tells you a sense of like why that's attractive, but also like anybody who's on the other side of that trade, right, is getting hosed because that means they've like lost, you know, basically half half of their equity or more. It's just complete bloodbath. Wow. And is that open door rooftop that's offering that right now? The triple B 70%? No, no. They, 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 would, they were just like, they're almost like an, uh, an originator. Got it. Like the, the market has like, it's a lot like 2008. People originate stuff. A lot of the fintech players out there were just like straight up originators. They would just like get stuff, you know, consumer credit or housing or, or um, whatever it is to get it. And then turn around and they sell it to the street. Mm. And the street would bundle it up and then uh, hypothecate it, right? Like, like leverage it. And so, um, and so that, uh, that like kind of factory floor is now like, in shambles. Um, let's go back to a line you just said, which is, I see a liquidity crisis coming. And obviously, you're providing the examples of how we're getting there. Can you give me an arc or a projection of timeline? Like, are we, uh, you know, in the first month of an 18-month process? Are we in the sixth month of a nine-month process? Where, what's your predictions here? So that's, okay, that's, that's really hard. The time is, like the, is actually like the part that you sort of you know, I'm just going back. Like, if you're trying to make a fundamental prediction, you can say, like, you know, this is like fundamental value, but when it gets there, like, you know, it could take, like, look, like <laughs> 2016, 17, maybe it was 18. I was like, oh, this is like the top. And then it went for like a few more years because there was all this, like, you know, there was a tax cut from under Trump. And then there was like, you know, Trump stimulus and Biden stimulus and, you know, you know, whatever, PAL stimulus. So, so, so it's hard to say on timing, but like it, you sort of look at it as it just, it started, it, I like to sometimes do the parallel to 2007, eight. So in 2007, the, the bond market 
actually started to freeze up around August. That's when like, basically you could stop. It's the, the, the Wall Street said, you, you can't bring me any more stuff. Now, Bear Stearns basically like, got sold for a dollar in, I think, March of 08. And then Lehman Brothers goes bankrupt September 08. So there, there was this like, sort of long, drawn-out process before, when things are like, the music stops, but everybody's sort of hoping it comes back pretending that everything's okay like it just there's this long delay between when like like everything actually finally breaks and when it's like you know i mean you you sort of know it's going to break but you don't know when at that point and so like that's where we are today we're in that sort of interim period that's sort of like pretty like the guns of august if you ever read that book by, by um barbara tuckman right like the guns of like in world war one war was declared by you know Germany and Russia and England and France in August, and then there was like six months where nothing happened, and then like and then like it was just like sort of like this halcyon quiet period, but like war was coming, and that's where we are. So you're you're not painting a very rosy twenty three. No, it's going to be really ugly. Don't hold back. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm the curmudgeon here, right? That's like if you know, I'm I'm like. Paranoid survive as like uh, Andy Grove said. So I'm a paranoid person, uh, but like I'm actually like the funny thing is I was like pes- I was like pessimistic for the last few years, and I'm like, oh, this is like op- I'm like, like optimistic. Like, oh, now like the rules of the game will make sense, or you can actually operate and make decisions because like what matters is reality. So this is a perfect transition to uh, Funrise. So for those that don't know, can you just give some color on what Funrise is, what you all do? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's very close to what your mission is. So we basically felt like individuals should be, invest, should be able to invest in real estate the same way they invest in stocks and bonds. Like, it doesn't make sense that you can't as easily and as low cost and without intermediaries. And, and so we fundraised basically what started in 2012. We said we're going to democratize investing in real estate. And, and I felt like, especially after 2008, like having real assets um, managed with some integrity would would pay off. And we have, we have like, you know, almost 400,000 investors and 1.6 million users. And, you know, we own 20,000 residential units across the Sun Belt. And we, you know, we were, I think we're in the top 50 largest sort of real estate, um, private equity players in the, in the world. So that's awesome. Did you say top five, zero or top one, five, top 50 that we're like number 45 or something. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's a trend like, Direct-to-consumer, like Warby Parker's direct-to-consumer and Amazon's direct-to-consumer, you know, before private assets were only sold through broker-dealers, intermediaries, you know, it's, it was just, or just by hand, right, like through like country clubs. And so this is like a mega trend. And, and, and like, if you look at our performance right now, right, so Q3, we, we put out our performance, stock markets down, like public REITs would be a good, good comp. They're down 28%. And we're up 5% so far this year. So we're beating the stock market by like 32%. Oh, wow. Public REITs, say that again? Public, down 28%. Wow. Yeah. And we're, and we're like, you know, we're across the whole platform, about, up about 5%. And so, like, you know, if, you, if, if I said to you, like, oh, you just lost a 30-year net worth, you would just be like, oh, my God, right? So, like, all of my like paranoia and like pessimism, like 
this is when I also say I'm the tortoise, not the hare. So like, this is where it starts to like actually show. So just so people understand. So, okay. Like Warby Parker, you're going direct to the investors. You don't have to go through any intermediaries, but people can invest right into your, your platform. And it's what they give you how much money minimum of what? Well, I mean, the minimum is $10, right? Okay. And what's the average? 10,000. Okay. So somebody on this who's listening can give like an average, let's call it 10,000, but the minimum is $10. And they know that they're going to get real estate exposure that they choose themselves or that you manage for them. Uh, We have different strategies. So we have like, I mean, most investors just like have an outcome they want, like long-term appreciation or like current yield. Uh, But then we have also like, you know, we have like um, build for rent, industrial, uh, multifamily, you know, credit strategies. So we have like layers of, of, of choices. Most people just don't, don't like, how do you know the difference? Like, should you be in this, this or that right now? Maybe your listeners are more sophisticated, but no, no, let's, let's assume not. So most people are saying, Hey, I'm looking for 8% or 10% or 12% return over this amount of time. Just make it work for me, please. Yeah. We try to make it easy. I mean, that's uh, like, and, and simple. That's, I think, critical for any kind of digital platform you don't want to put like a mental load on people and then you know our job is basically to to try to to create the best you know outcomes for the customer that's great so for example uh, i don't know if this is a fair question but like what was like the average return last year like in 21 for your investors yeah it's sort of it's sort of i can give you the answer but it's like last year was like a special year um, so we were like, our equities were up like 30, 40%. Oh, because of like a COVID bump sort of thing? Yeah, that's not normal. Like basically... What's been like your average for the 10 years of existence? Yeah, more like 10, right? Like, And that's 10% appreciation or like a 10% yield? No, the, the yield is, um, I think the average has been like, I don't know, seven or eight maybe. And and like the, no, the appreciation is like, I don't know. It depends on the on the strategy. Maybe sometimes it's higher, but it, I have to I, off the top of my head. I you know could be doing this so long. I don't like an average over a decade. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. So you have like a team of folks that are looking for all of these real estate projects across America, or do you focus in a specific geography? You said Sunbelt. Is that kind of where your main area is, or are you looking everywhere? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I've been doing this now for like 20 years, so like you know, what's the good investment changes basically every like decade or so. So like, um, we were in urban infill mixed use, like, like Brooklyn and, and, um, you know, LA arts district and all these things are were in the beginning of Fundrise. That's really where the growth was in the, in the big blue cities. And then in 2017, we really started shifting away from that towards the Sunbelt affordable, affordable, um, rental, like more workforce housing and, and so now we have all Sunbelt and I, and I sort of see the Sunbelt being like a you know, 10 year trend, probably at least like COVID work from home has really amplified that trend. So people moving to Austin, I mean, this is, everybody knows about this, but like that trend in real estate, I think is going to like going to last through like at least the next 10 years. Oh, so you think we're early in that 10 year trend? Yes. I mean, it's, it's depressing what's the, the, the we're going to see, I think, a real decline in cities. Like, I mean, I'm in DC. In DC, I, I'm you know, from DC. DC went bankrupt in the 90s, eight in the 80s, basically, or crime. And then you sort of see that repeating that that 
that pattern's like a ba- it's in the process of repeating again. And I think as like crime and affordability and work from home continues to be like the most important things for people, it's going to keep driving people to like great more you know places that have great weather, you know great sort of natural amenities and are more affordable. So not everybody gets to have you to answer this question, but I feel like I need to ask it. Um, give me three cities that you're long on and three cities that you're sh- that you're short on uh, between now and 2030. Oh. So first, let's go long. What are your three cities? That- okay, long. Yeah, God, that's an interesting one. I I want to. I feel like um, I'll give you a couple obvious and one like not so obvious. So like you know, long Austin, long like uh, you know, Nashville, and then I'm going to say my surprise one maybe Columbus. Oh yeah, I think Columbus is like an emerging long one. Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, not the Sun Belt. No, I think I think. Intel's new factory there. It was already good, but I think it's like going to get a lot better. And I worry a little bit about climate change. I think Columbus is like a good hedge on on climate change. So that's like long. Oh, you want to? I like that. Yeah, yeah. Let's do three shorts. Chicago for sure. I mean, it's a disaster. It's so it's been it's been a, a disaster in the making for years. And is that a crime situation and education schooling or something else? It's like everything. I mean, it's basically. You know, it's really bad government, mm-hmm. and that's actually all. That's something people underestimate how much the sort of culture of government matters. Like, why is Pittsburgh essentially recovered and Cleveland not? Mm. It's really like the local government just was a disaster and compared comparatively. So Chicago has like pension funds that are like verge going bankrupt. You know, they're having to tax people away. You know, it's just it, there's a lot of like us them dynamics that, that I think it's that's why like Ken Griffin left. And so it's it's just a, a bad dynamic. So that's the easy one. That's for sure like a like the next Detroit. Like just some I'm really sad. Uh and then probably DC and San Francisco are like not gonna do so well compared to where they were their their high highs of like last decade. Got it. Uh really interesting perspective. So the obvious question for somebody in your position is how are you navigating the inflation? How are you navigating the interest rate hikes? So what does that do as part of your decision making in regards to what you invest into? And more importantly, how you think about exits? Yeah, it's uh, something I learned in 2008. And I, and it's like, um, you know, most people haven't been through it, like you think you have been but like, but when the crisis hits, there's it's hard to actually like everything you need to, to have done needed to have happened before the crisis came. Like when you're in the crisis, your your options are much more circumscribed. So like way before this, we were like, I was like, like don't buy that, lean back. We had to like cash drag. So here on the income fund, for example, we our our current yield or our credit fund really went down. It was like low around I'm gonna say January. It probably it was this low point. I don't, I'm not I'm not gonna remember exactly what the number was, but let's say it's was normally eight or ten or twelve percent. It had fallen to maybe like five or four, let's say five. Everybody was upset and they're like, why is the yield falling so much? I'm like, because we're out of credit. We're in cash. Because everything's gonna reprice and we're gonna lose money if we're if we're invested. And and people were frustrated, but then like everything repriced, like you know, treasuries are down like 15% treasuries, right? So you're let alone like any other credit. So we and now we're going back in to markets. Into in the credit markets, and we're you know we're lending, and and it's like incredible time to do that. But so 
So what we were doing before is we were leaning back and building up cash and, and we were, we, we had, we have hundreds of millions of dollars of real estate with no debt on it. We were just like, let's like delever, lean back. And like, you know, when, when a 2008 happens, which I think is not going to be like 2008, but like when a real crisis happens, like you could almost not be too conservative. Like you wish you, no matter how conservative you were, you wish you were more conservative because it's just like when it gets bad, it's like always worse than anybody could imagine. So, so we, we're going into this, I think, much better position than most companies because we were just like, we were, you know, we, 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 we had to take, you have to take the pain when times are good, essentially, right? And, and that like people aren't always happy about that. Um, but I think our customers like generally trusted us. So, we, so that's, so now then where are you like, I mean, we're still having to delever some because like, um, you know, the interest rates are, are so high, but m- mostly we have fixed rate debt. So we mostly are, we have 10 year fixed rate debt. So, so it's sort of like, that doesn't matter for our, for most of our portfolio. Um, we have, we have a decent amount of cash. I mean, hundreds of millions of cash built up. And, and so I'm like, and I've been waiting to basically like, go back in the market we started to go back in i said i said i started we started buying these sort of triple b um securitizations in sfr we bought like a few of those and we're looking at more like we're looking at like sfr being a single sing, single family real estate relative single family rental yeah sorry single family rental yeah like i mean or you know because multifamily just to get into the weeds for a minute multifamily doesn't have distress because they'll they'll um all multifamily mostly gets um the, the sort of the factory floor is through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, mm-hmm. and which then wraps it with a government guarantee. And so, like Fannie and Freddie paper trades like tr- like a treasury. So there's much less value to find there. Yeah, it's like you know you're paying 98 bips over. You know, a, you know you're buying like uh sorry, let's see, I don't take that. Maybe that's fine. Like we're you know you're like treasury like the treasury will will be whatever today three four percent, and like Fannie Freddie paper might be like four or five. That's just not like um, attractive enough mm-hmm. for us, at least. Um, just as an opportunity for you to talk about uh, Fundrise versus uh, any of the other platforms, because I think there are other platforms that are trying to serve uh, the investor, um, whether they've been around as long as you or as big as you. You know, I'm, I don't know all the facts, but wh- how would you say Fundrise is different or obviously better? Uh, different. I would say different. It's different in a few ways. So in the beginning. Uh, you know, the question was, do you like let people pick their own real estate deals or, you know, or whatever, you could be any, any platform, like you pick which like, um, company you want to invest in or which pro and, and we basically moved away from that, you know, 2015, a long time ago. Cause I felt like, um, people really didn't know, like, it's just, it, it, I don't think people even can pick stocks. Maybe you pick like, you know, Apple and Google and Tesla, but mostly you're in, you're in like, um, you know, a, a fund and, and the fund's job is to know what they're doing. And so like a little bit like, what do I want to be? I'd rather be Blackstone than be like, uh, I don't know, I don't know, like a boutique syndicator. Sure. And, and there's like a lot of benefits in, not just in like, okay, maybe we have a point of view that's different from the investor, but like it lets us like lean back and build up more cash. It lets us essentially have an opinion that, I just, I just couldn't, if somebody loses money, it makes me crazy. I just like, I, I, so I make, you know, I'm, I'm a lot of our investors, we have a lot of really big investors in the platform, like with like millions, 
because they look at it as like wealth preservation and wealth preservation was not popular you know 2021 or 20 like no, nobody was like i gotta preserve my wealth they're like i gotta make a lot of money i'm gonna make you know 100x on on crypto like coin so so like um so it was a lot about also like kind of how like constitutionally like we're at the people at the company are, are like we just we have a view and that view basically kind of means we we just can't put something out there and have it like basically like outside of our control that if it goes bad we can't get in there and take over and and, and like fix it because if it's one deal on a separate llc it really limits your ability to like operate got it i appreciate you sharing that you've already mentioned this before but i just want to um unwrap this interest rates are rising which means mortgages are rising the payments that need to be paid what is the impact you're seeing on that on the actual real estate prices and how do you see that evolving through 23 that's a good question yeah so i think people think of housing and they and they don't think about rental as like different assets so like for sale housing is completely different asset than a rental house you know, if you have somebody renting for two thousand dollars a month, like you get you get inflation for through rent growth, but it's pretty stable. Most people like need housing; they're not going to not need housing. It's a basic need, a basic good. That's why it's like a, that's why I think of it as a, a really safe asset. But most people don't need to buy a house. Right, buying a house is a luxury good, and so what happens with for sale housing is it's a much more binary um, outcome. It's hot, people buy it, or it's cold and nobody buys it. And if nobody's buying your house empty, which basically means it gets foreclosed on. And so um, 2008, like housing fell 35, 40%, and rental um, income fell 3%, 4%. Na- nationwide, and that's like, hopefully we, we're doing better than average na- nationally. So I, so I think it's just, um, it performs a lot more resiliently. Uh, rental housing does and so it's and so it's um but i mean where 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 it gets where it does get impacted is like you know if the risk-free return is you know fed funds rate the risk-free return went from zero to five percent right then you then like on paper everything has to reprice right what's the paper value of an income stream if the risk-free return is is basically so I mean, I mean, overnight, I mean, over the course of like six months, it went from zero to it's going to be it's going to be four and a half five percent, right? By the end of this year, right? Meaning, if you can just get five percent by not even trying and have zero risk, you got to get more if you're getting into risk. Yeah, I mean, the the fancy like way to think about it is, you know, any any investment is discounted cash flow of future income streams, right? And like, you know. You you take a few future income stream and you have to discount it based on, in theory, like you know, a risk free return plus a risk premium. And if the risk free return is five, rather than zero, right? Like it's like the discounted cash flows are worth less. So so that is like repricing the whole market. And I, I and I I think that like that's like here to here to stay. It's going to be twenty twenties are going to be the opposite of twenty tens, right? Assets are going to be we're going to fall and stay low, but wages are going to stay up. Last decade, wages were stagnant and assets appreciated. So big wealth divide happened. Like a lot of inequality was sort of outcome of Fed policy. And we're looking at like sort of a symmetrical opposite. And I think it's like a, 
you know, the Fed, the CPI, the inflation, consumer infl- um, price index was up, you know, 8.2% this, the, today. And I think like it was 8.3 last month and, you know, 8.6 the previous month. It's like, it's pretty, it's not coming down very quickly. Right. But that was an interesting thing. So you're saying that wages will go up, but assets will stay stable, which is the counter to what happened the previous decade. So assets will decline generally. Even decline. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, because it's just like, you know, quantitative tightening, which is the opposite of quantitative easing. Yeah. And, and, and high interest rates. But like, there's a, an interesting like structural dynamic happening in my opinion, where there's, we cut off immigration from since 2016 as a policy. It's like a been a policy of the country to reduce immigration, and that means there's less workers. Two, there's like I I think it's about two million less workers now than there were, like there would have been if we'd had immigration as like robust, and that means there's less construction workers and less like restaurant workers. And then so people are saying, why aren't there workers? I mean, it's also because of baby boomers retiring and you know, other factors, but like. They're not going to, you can't replace workers with like interest rates. <laughs> so, so it's just like, I think we're going to enter a period where labor is scarce and wages are higher and we're, and we can't offshore everything to China anymore. And it's just going to make for higher inflation. And that's, you know, it's, there's good for, for the average investor, I mean, average um, worker, but it, you know, the kinds of returns we saw last decade are, are over for, some period of time. Interesting. You, I'm going to segue this as a final question about, about Fundrise, is that um, you got into venture, meaning you just recently offered a venture product. Uh, wh- why'd you do that? Well, so we, we, we built the infrastructure to, to let individuals invest into alternatives, which is like um, very similar to Blackstone. It's a very similar structure just through the internet. And um, we look at like what are great, great investments like what have performed great over the last decade you know 20 30 50 years and i think real estate is like fundamental um and and people couldn't get it before and and same with basically private tech like especially i mean you know you know this actually better than better than me but basically like private tech companies used to go public 20 years ago you know amazon went public it had 250 employees and 16 million in revenue right that company today would would not go public, right? And instead, it, it, it would you know Uber goes public at fifty billion dollar valuation, or CoinDesk goes public fifty billion dollar valuation. So, like the 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 unintended consequences of the SEC ring fencing all this risk is that like risk and return they go together, and so it it is really limited a lot of the the positive outcomes for individuals. So it's like that's like a regulatory. Um, you know, structural barrier that that shouldn't that should should exist to prevent bad things, but shouldn't exist to prevent good things. So, you know, we're trying to break that down. And so, mostly, what we're investing in is just like the kind of companies that would have been public twenty years ago, ten years ago, but aren't. So, I'm not talking about like super early stage seed stuff. I'm talking about like Databricks and Fivetran and right. So pre IPO. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they're going public anytime soon. Right, right, right. <laughs> And hopefully, hopefully, the, I mean, I, the pricing is. Is there is there some sort of like valuation threshold of a minimum that you're looking for? I would say we're just looking for um, real product market fit, and that and that might usually mean you know 10 million in revenue or more. Like, got it. It's Series B, C. Um, so it's it's pretty actually. If you once you once you have product market fit, it's actually really easy to see the company has momentum and good product. Like 
you can look at the GitHub stars and so and it, and so um and we have like 100 engineers and 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 a lot of technical people so it's we can but it's a, it's a, again almost a fundamental investment if you can invest in like you can invest in snowflake but not databricks why not it doesn't make any sense i completely agree um speaking of that what did you think of Kathy Wood coming out with uh, an offering in the venture world i mean it's it's a mega trend right i think it's it's going to be direct to consumers like going to become a big part of how um people invest and so she's going to do it she's sort of in some ways like opposite of us opposite of me she's like risk on all the way you know <laughs> you guys will be a good talk show the two of you <laughs> she's like flying cars and spaceships and stuff and i'm like you know core infrastructure and like houses so <laughs> So it's but it's like both both are good. It depends on what people want. I love that. I love that. Um, people want to you know be as smart as you and as knowledgeable as you. What are some of the things you like to read, listen to, or watch? Any examples? Yeah, definitely. I love I love podcasts. I think my two favorite are Acquired. If you know the Acquired guys, that podcast. I mean, they're like super in depth, four hours an episode. Uh, love and I, I like and I think Invest Like the Best actually like does a pretty good job. Uh, Shaughnessy is like Im- impressive. So that's the podcast side. And then the Fed guy has a, it's a, it's a blog and a, a guy used to work at the Fed and he's got a Twitter handle, Fed guy 12. That guy is so on the money about like, if you read him, you're, you're going to sit, you're going to see, oh, this is like exactly what Ben's saying too, but he's like in the guts of the, of that. That guy's really smart. And then calculated risk, which is a housing guy. So, um, yeah. But a podcast, podcasts are the best. I just think they're, uh, they're like Gutenberg, right? There's like, you invented this new medium and it's just so wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I wish our format was to go four hours, but that's not really what we're doing. And I know you're, you're a busy guy. <laughs> uh, last question for you, which is when I have you back next year or a few years from now, um, I like to know what your pick today was that everybody should listen to. So we always put everybody on the spot. What's your investment advice for today? A specific investment, the more clear, the more specific, the better the more actionable, the better, that three years from now you feel confident about? Ooh. Okay, this is what I'm thinking about. This is not like available to everybody. And I'm, and I'm going to tell you what it is. And it's because it's really crazy. And then three years, it's literally three years now. Is it, is it? So I think that I would go get a, a credit default swap on Taiwan. Because I'm like, I think that China is like really serious about trying to bring Taiwan back into China. And the market is not priced that at all. And even if it doesn't happen, it's going to become much more likely. And so the price, it'll, you'll be in the money on that. And it's a hedge against, it's also a hedge against like a lot of bad things happening in the world. Basically, you're saying, I want to invest in the probability that something bad will happen with Taiwan. Yes. I mean, it's, it's I, you know, it's not, a, it's not an optimistic. No, 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 that's fine. <laughs> but that's the investment. And where would you get that investment? I mean, you have to go buy a credit default swap. I mean, you know, you have to buy that from like Goldman or, you know, one of the... Got it. Yeah. All right. This has been awesome. I love... You gave some awesome talking points that I haven't heard before. Uh, ben, thank you so much for joining. It's really been an incredible conversation. I'm looking at some of my notes. We started out with your comparing your family to the Royal Tenenbaums. <laughs> you were able to navigate the early crash and that inspired you to absolutely abhor stocks. Uh, and you even said, I don't own any stocks, which is amazing. Uh, you sold all your stocks in 2015, 16. And I, we're, I'm going to now know you as a curmudgeon of hype. You might need to add that to your bio. Um, and you see a liquidity crisis coming, which is 
very interesting. The street is made up of mostly floating debt, which I don't know if people know that as opposed to fixed. So that's obviously a big issue with the rates constantly changing. The guns of August, I thought that was a great example where, you know, the guns might have gone off, but people are still, you know, it's silent and people are just hanging out for six months, not knowing what's going to happen. Your average investor in Fundrise is putting in 10K, which is amazing. So you're really democratizing it uh, like other D2C companies. And it was very interesting that you said in 2008, you know, the new housing fell 35%, but rentals only a few percent. So that sort of difference and the stability of the rentals is very interesting. Then you said this decade is going to be rough, right? Wages will go up. Inflation will go up, but the actual assets will decline. So we should look out for that. You also told us your top three cities that you like, the top three cities that you don't like. Columbus was a big surprise. And then you told us to invest in credit default swaps for Taiwan. Amazing. <laughs> wow. Okay. Great summary. Uh, thank you so much. Um, we'll talk to you next time. Yeah. Thanks. Smart Humans with Slava Rubin is a podcast brought to you by the team at Vincent. Any data, text, or other content in this podcast is provided as general market information and not as investment advice. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future results. For more information on alternative investing, check out Vincent at www.withvincent.com. <laughs>